Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, October 19th, The Wire with Wigs Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia, and in the New York studios, we have June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. So um, before we get started, I will say last week's segment, we got a lot of response for our Slate Plus segment. I'm sorry for those of you who didn't hear it about uh, dating men your own age. Um, And I would say that the most common response we got was that I can't date men my own age because they're immature. That came up a lot. I was surprised by that. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess not. I mean, we discussed that on the segment, but it did seem people were like, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do it. (laughs) So We also got some interesting responses from gay people who said, wow, that was strange. Didn't know what, like, that was almost (laughs) like a a sociological or anthropological (laughs) case study that is a culture I don't know much about. One guy was like, June, I admired your patience. (laughs) With the straight people. (laughs) That was great. Um, Anyway, so let's jump into our show. We are going to talk about Harvey Weinstein because how could we not? Tremendous fallout from that situation. Second, The Deuce, the HBO show about 42nd Street, prostitution, early days of porn. And finally, ageism and our cultural prejudice against it. And for a Slate Plus topic... June, do you want to say what we're talking about? Sure, in our slip. For all the sexy witches, all the sexy witches out there, pay attention. Pay attention. Sexy nurses, sexy everything. <laughs> we will be asking whether Halloween costumes are perforce sexist. Are all Halloween costumes sexist? And if you want to listen to that segment and support Slate's journalism, you can join Slate Plus. Uh, your first year is $35 a year by going to slate.com slash XX Plus. Wait, like, so if you're wearing a Nixon mask, we have to argue that that's sexist or well, just like the whole industry? That's the question. Is the Halloween costume industrial complex perforce sexist? Is it? Who knows? We'll discuss that. All right. I look forward to that. Okay, so our first topic, Harvey Weinstein. I'm sure most of our listeners have tuned into this. Hollywood Titan accused now by dozens of women of both sexual harassment and sexual abuse, women who are really, really famous, less famous, just so many women, amazing uh, uh, investigative stories, both in The New York Times and The New Yorker. It's been known for years, decades, only it's coming out now. There's things that are particular about this case, and then there's kind of culture-shattering, earth-shaking ramifications that are general and seem to be affecting lots of different industries. So uh, a few days later, we are going to talk about the fallout of the case. All right. So first, the particulars. In many ways, Harvey Weinstein is a case of one, right? Or even that industry is a case of one. Like I was Mm -hmm. trying to think to myself, what other industry is exactly like this and creates exactly these situations? So what is unique about this case before we get to what affects all of us? Well, Harvey Weinstein um, was an incredibly powerful person in this particular way. Um, He was he 
you know, he obviously had a lot of power in Hollywood. He could um, an artistic power too, right? Not just like box office power. He he was making um, movies that people really respected that the Academy consistently chose. More than um, 300 Oscar nominations yeah. for his movies. But he also had this symbiotic relationship. I think it's fair to characterize it that way with the press. Um, you know, Miramax wasn't – there. Miramax was an advertiser a lot of places. Harvey was an important source for a lot of people. He also seems to have um, given a lot of journalists contracts of various kinds that that may have may or may not have influenced whether this story came out before now. He he was someone who wielded um, power in ways direct and indirect, and and like was very interested in keeping a stranglehold on that. And something that got a lot of attention that I think that I, I don't know if I was uncomfortable with it because it was too true or just like it annoyed me because it didn't seem relevant, but much hair was made of the fact that he's a major democratic donor, mm. that he's uh, given a lot of money to what I think we would we would see as very good causes. Um, and that that caused backlash from, I would say, conservatives who were like, oh, they're not saying anything about Harvey, right in the middle of everybody piling on Harvey. Yes, you didn't know that the biggest problem with Harvey Weinstein is that Hillary Clinton didn't distance herself from him, exactly. the major story here. Exactly. I mean, so I keep thinking about this case as, yes, OK, it's a very particular story about a very particular man. But it's also such a metaphor for every other office power dynamic between the sexes, right? Like Hollywood is the most extreme version of it because it lays it out all on the table. Like you have power, you have youth and beauty. Here is how, you know, I'm going to use you. But 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 like a version of those dynamics actually exists in other industries too. Like what? Give me an example. Because I was trying to think like, all right, Hollywood is the place where you have ridiculous emphasis on status, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, the the norms of Hollywood and how people behave and how their kind of whims are, Mm -hmm. are, you know, um, what's the right word? Just indulged are, is, 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 is a little bit extreme, right? And then the kind of the 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 dependent the interdependence yeah. between men like that and and young the endless supply of young women because um, I was thinking maybe sports has an element of this like coaches and young like gymnasts I was just trying to think what other worlds kind of mimic this horrific dynamic that that you know creates this potential for abuse there's a that's definitely a, a variety of of that same dynamic but it's different it's easier to point out the differences because. You know, talent is is a factor in both. You know, you have these powerful men who can who can bring out the talent, who have the power to give opportunities. But the talent, especially in sports, is so, you know, it's so much easier to quantify. You know, yes, you can make, you know, a, a coach uh, and training and all of that can make a difference, um, you know, of a few seconds to a time, which is essential. But you still have to run really fast, whereas it seems like, Everything is subjective in the movie business. You know, the, the right. women are absolutely at the whim. You know, you you couldn't say, well, look, she can run really fast. You know, quantify her acting somehow. It's it's all, you know, quantify her suitability for that role. It's it's just absolute. It's very unique, I think. I don't know. I think, I think Hollywood makes what is subtext elsewhere in the yes, culture text, yes, right? Yes, like, yes. like it is entirely premised on, um, you know, this relationship between, between sex and power. And that 
he's obviously beneath the surface in a lot of other, yeah. not as explicitly, because if you work in another industry, you're not, you know, you, what you, the work that you're doing is not necessarily premised on your beauty or your sex appeal. But the reality is, as we, you know, we've talked about a million, million Silicon Valley sexual harassment cases this year. Mm-hmm. Coding has nothing to do with like, you know, how attractive you are. And yet in that industry, it, it creeps its way into. I don't think it's about the work that's being done. I think it's about the way that men and women are taught on some deep level that they can relate to each other or ought to relate to each other. I just I just think that it um, I think that's why people are responding to this so strongly that it doesn't feel like, you know, just this thing in this crazy industry that I will never have anything to do with. Like, yes, I watch the movies, but I'm not, you yeah. know, I'm not a movie star. Who cares? I think people see like just a magnified version of something they have thought in their daily lives and their interactions of all kinds. Yeah, I think that's right. It's that the movie business is different and extreme, but because it's so extreme, maybe. So, look, I I don't work in that crazy industry, but I can see it. So, yeah, I agree. And also, these are the people who are creating our cultural myths. Right, right. You know, whether whether or not this is totally explicit in those, I I would argue that oftentimes it is. Right. Like they're deciding what stories our culture is telling us about men and women. And so it's more powerful for that reason. You know what I found really moving? This is a little bit of a maybe a side issue, but I feel like the more these sexual harassment cases come out, like Donald Trump, that was so crude, you know, Mm -hmm. and it didn't have any details to it, really. In this case, you're getting these really moving, like the Asia Argento is one of the actresses who came out in The New Yorker. And um, there was so much layer. I feel like we're getting sophisticated, more sophisticated in in what we can handle Mm -hmm. as a story of sexual assault and still count it as a story of sexual assault. Now, if it had been just her, I realize it would have been different. Like this is a power in numbers question. So the fact that she had lots and lots of people confirming other women can confirming her story, allowed her to tell her story to Ronan Farrow in a kind of, that was the New Yorker story, by the way, in a kind of more layered and detailed because she did have a relationship with him at some level. She did participate in that relation and she was absolutely probably raped. Like all of those things are true. And she felt guilty for years. I mean, it's probably a very, very real account of how sexual assault plays out in a woman's life when it's kept secret. And I thought that was really, I mean, it was novelistic. Like, I thought that yes. would if, if that would really help people to read that and say, oh, that's exactly what happened to me. Like, those are all the things that I did. That's all the ways I felt about it for years. And everybody's still labeling it sexual assault, you know? Right. The complicated way that you sort of blame yourself and feel complicit. I, I, she, I give her so much credit for for putting that all out there in a way that very easily could be twisted against her. But she was sort of like, no, this is what happened in all of its weird and and um, strange and, and complicated ways. Can we talk about um, him and how he's been portrayed? Because I, I found I, I responded to that a similar way, like the whole discussion around, you know, what does he represent to men in the culture? Um, why are some men holding out and not criticizing him? Like, what is he in the culture? And then also kind of, is this an illness? You know, is he a broken man? What his brother said about him? Um, maybe this, because this is all coming out from Hollywood, it's unspooling with so much more kind of narrative <laughs> richness than right. usual. Right. Um, um, yeah, I a lot of the discussion of him that I've seen has started from a place of discussing his physicality and almost turning him into the ogre in a fairy tale, right? That he's this 
in a way that like if you weren't if you hadn't allegedly done so many horrible horrible things you'd be like well maybe we should stop fat shaming harvey weinstein but but in the moment you're like yeah he he you know he's a he's a gross man and people are just searching for ways to discuss it but a lot of it has centered on you know his his physical presence in the world and and the difference between him and the women he's he's supposedly assaulted and there is something to that right like i'm sure that um whatever therapy he is currently supposedly undergoing will center a lot on why he has so many issues around um why he's so focused on beauty right um but that that's one way in which it's interesting to me there was a great uh, i think we call them these days tweet storm <laughs> by uh ben kling who i guess uh, works at tumblr um but he talked about how Harvey Weinstein, quote, exemplifies the conversion of other capitals into sexual capital. And it was a really interesting thread because even though it was full of kind of, um, you know, <laughs> capitalist type buzzwords, I think there were anti-capitalist, anti-capitalist <laughs> buzzwords. Thank you. Yes. There really is something to this notion that you have to believe or not you uh Certain people have to believe in the kind of almost the myth of Harvey Weinstein. You know, Harvey Weinstein has to exist uh, so that um, people can keep hope alive, even though that hope is completely corrupt and, and you know, corrupting. Um, somehow the idea that you just need to get rich. If you're rich and powerful enough, um, you know, you can have beauty and youth and that can be yours. And that's it's it's gross when it's um, uh, kind of summarized in that way. Uh, but I think it is kind of, you know, the, the hope of Harvey Weinstein powers a lot of, um, you know, people who have nothing. Not people, men. Men, yes, thank you. Yes. Men are fed yeah. that cultural script. Men and the way we sell that dream. Like I thought mm-hmm. about our, our segment on Hugh Hefner mm-hmm. and the just mm-hmm. the commodification of women and sex. And it, it all felt so true in that mm-hmm. tweet storm. Like mm-hmm. I really could see it. Like you need to believe that if one day you become rich and powerful enough, along with that, like along with your car, your house, comes your woman, mm-hmm. you know. And if that is so culturally deep. But that really depressed me, yeah. that tweet yeah. storm, because I yeah. thought like, is that a cultural script or is that something deeper than a cultural like are we in the i i always dismiss that evolutionary biology yeah. you know yeah. man spread sperm man wants young woman as just utter bullshit absolutely um because it just doesn't make sense to me on a lot of different levels but the way it, it made it seem like ooh, shit. like is it with us forever this like men just feel like you know it, it, you get your reward at the end and one of your rewards is the hot babe well, and, you know, let's not ignore the fact that, you know, again, we're coming back around to this, oh, it's Hollywood. And and so much of the movies is premised on, you know, the roles that especially young women get being ones where they're going to have to take their top off or do a nude scene or they're going to, you know, where the, it's the, the women's just like what the stuff that Hollywood is selling us, um, you know, which I tend not to think of movies this way, but. God damn it, there is a lot of just like gratuitous sex in the movies still. So can we talk about the way this is spread in the culture? Me too, it's hashtag uh, asking women to share their experiences of sexual assault. And then this shitty men media list, which has been circulating among journalists, which is the names of other men who women who, who women claim have harassed them. Um, what did you guys think about the Me Too campaign? 
Well, it is really all over my Facebook feed in particular, Mm -hmm. Um, and which I think is the point of the campaign, right? So this its most recent iteration started when I believe the actress Alyssa Milano tweeted out, you know, if all the women who have been um, assaulted or harassed tweeted me too, we'd see the scope scale of the problem. But the campaign has actually been around for a lot longer. There's a woman named Tarana Burke. Who, as an activist in, in domestic violence and, and, you know, in general about unity and solidarity, who started a Me Too campaign about 10 years ago. Yeah. So so that is, you know, coming off of that. And and I, you know, I think it has succeeded in um, explaining the scale of the problem. One thing that I am a little, I feel a little hesitant about with it is that it does sort of conflate a range of behaviors, right? So a lot of people who are posting Me Too, I mean, the idea is that you should not have to go into the details of whatever whatever this encounter is that you're discussing. But it can mean anything from like street harassment, I think, all the way up to um, rape. And but they're, they're, you know, you don't really have a sense when someone posts um, what they're talking about. And I, I understand the argument that it's all part of a culture that creates this, you know, violence against women. But I also do think that there's a really meaningful difference between street harassment and um, and rape. And the other thing that I want you guys to help me out with that I've been thinking about a lot this week, and I'm not arguing against it, I'm just struck by it, is that there does seem to be this collective um, embrace of victimhood or reclaiming of victimhood that women are doing around this. Like, in some ways, it's it's like a, a a show of strength. Like, right, you've done this, but but you know, screw you, I'm I'm fine. Um, on the other hand, there is something weird about every single not weird. I don't I don't quite know how to express this, but I'm a little uneasy with the idea that every woman um, she doesn't have to, but but many women are being like sort of asked to present themselves as victims or as part of this larger movement when they may not, you know, have processed whatever this experience was in that particular way. And I'm I'm just struck by it as a cultural moment. I don't want to say it's good or bad. It just seems to be the universal collective desire in this moment. Yeah, I mean, one of, some of the best tweets in response to Weinstein, I mean, there's been this amazing, you know, blossoming of great, mm-hmm. great Twitter, um, even though there also was a Twitter boycott by women as, as, as part of the response, um, has been come on like what what is it i think they're talking to men of saying mm-hmm. you know what exactly is it that you need before you believe women before you believe that there's a problem before that right. you accept that there's a problem and you pledge to do something or just even recognize this behavior that we're all surrounded by um and so that i think is very powerful but also has this other side of like do I have to present proof? Do I, you know, right. you know, and like this feeling of, do I have to perform my pain? Do I have to? And, and do I even have to make it public if that's exactly. something that I don't want to yeah. make public? And I think the scale of the response, the fact that so many people's social media feeds mm-hmm. have been dominated by it is like, is that it makes it, whereas typically, you know, you like, I choose what I post or don't post. I'm in control of my social media presence. But when something is so big, you're like, am I being a bad feminist if I don't take part in this? 
Yeah. Yeah, we already got emails about Mm. this one from a woman, Amanda Pyle, who was just so torn about it because she felt like there was a lot of pressure from her friends. And she says, it's, you know, I I feel so much pressure to expose something deeply personal if I don't post, you know, how will I match my good feminist peers? Like there's this kind of necessity. I have to post or I'm not a, a good feminist. You know, there's a drive to kind of locate that part of yourself that was harassed. Now, interestingly, I usually feel this way. Like I usually feel in these moments of performative, like, like kind of injustice where everyone kind of swirls together. It takes on an artificial aspect to me when it's in this, like it it doesn't, you know, when you're asked, especially because it's something so personal, when you're asked to kind of join a group and perform it, it always takes away for me from the intimacy and the realness. The thing is, in, in this one particular case, I didn't feel that way. Mm. And the reason I didn't feel that way is because of the way the Harvey Weinstein scandal, uh, the way it unfolded, Mm -hmm. which is this just kind of shocking idea that for decades, you know, people had just kind of this germ in them. They just kind of held on to it by themselves, you know, And, and, and there's a way with women that everybody lives their little particular kind of shittiness mm-hmm. um, and they just kind of take that shittiness and you know you have like Angelina Jolie I mean there were so many people <laughs> everybody had their their version of it and um, and like with the Bill Cosby case um, just kind of naming it you know without the particulars like the particulars didn't necessarily matter but just kind of naming it putting it out there making it real I feel that's really really important in this particular although instance. there is an aspect to where the particulars are key because as in Bill Cosby, as in so many of these cases, what happens is enough people come forward that it's clear that there's a pattern and then somehow that when women see that there is a pattern, maybe that not only makes them think, if I come forward, I can prevent this pattern being used against another person. There's something powerful about recognizing the pattern. Yes. And having and even though I just said that I don't think certain behaviors are equivalent, one other thing that I think caused this outpouring for so many women and is actually useful is in the Bill Cosby case, it was so much about um, the most extreme version of of sexual violence against women. Right. Like what people wanted to know or like how many women did he rape or assault in this case? So many of the the things that came out with Weinstein are, um, you know, behaviors that didn't quite cross that bar but were obviously skeevy in the utmost and and um and made women feel really horrible right and made women feel horrible and i think that's the key thing that people are responding to is like okay this thing has happened to me you know i could never i wouldn't go to the police with it i wouldn't go to a supervisor with it 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 you know it doesn't seem to cross whatever bar but it made me feel in this particular horrible way and and i think that's what people are posting me to about is is the thing that you know just just made them feel a certain way and and i do agree that there is power in that and and um, i've been moved if like tentative about being moved by it let's quickly talk about the shitty men media list um that is clearly like completely unfair right it's like a list of allegations against men completely unfounded that is now circulating among other journalists that would make it you know it, it just like it it harms these men's employment prospects like there's no proof it's just and it's everything from kind of rape to you know stole my ideas at a meeting right so it's it's that's what the list looks like so to me it's 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 like obviously an unfair list on the other hand 
it's very against journalistic principles. What I would say about it is I wish women would circulate like the sisterhood would say there's such a list, but there wouldn't actually be such a list. <laughs> but we would make men think there was such a list and then they would know that they can't get away with this shit. Like it, that it's not nobody's going to keep it a secret anymore. We're always going to know and we're always going to write it down, but not actually write it down. <laughs> that to me is like the ideal way to do this. Yeah. I have such complicated feelings about that list. Uh, on the one hand, like you just said, it just seems like the wrong, very bad for sort of like even democracy. That, yeah. that this is it seems like a little bit of a Stalinist situation. On the other hand, I did look at the list and I can't stop thinking about the list, and it confirmed many stories that I had heard sort of whispered. Um, right, and that is is in theory the purpose behind it of like that you know as, as so many people said after the Weinstein allegations became actually made it into the New York Times, like, oh, that also, you know, so there's this whisper campaigns that are around, but you have to be like in the chain of whispers to hear those. Mm -hmm. So it's an attempt to, you know, protect people by, you know, making, not having to be in a particular network to, you know, take advantage of the whispers. But right. Well, listeners, uh, if you have any, if you have any feelings about the Me Too campaign, whether you were moved or not moved, or not just the Me Too campaign, but how you feel at this moment. Do you feel pressured to share stories that you're not ready to share, or do you think it's a good thing? Uh, please let us know. You can go onto our Facebook page, Double uh, X Gabfest, or you can write us if you want to do it more personally at Double X Gabfest at slate.com. And just for the record, Harvey Weinstein is denying unequivocally all, through his spokesman, all allegations of non consensual sex. So let's just say that before we continue. All right, the juice. The HBO show created by David Simon and George Pelkanos about 42nd Street, prostitutes and the pimps that ruled it, and the birth of the porn trade. It stars James Franco as a set of twins who were, one of them anyway, the real-life inspiration for the show. Maggie Gyllenhaal as Candy, who's the prostitute who is pimpless. She's the empowered prostitute. Not really. Not exactly. But something like that. <laughs> um, and then Dominic Fishback. Dominic Fishback, who's just, like, awesome. Really. I mean, just did everything. She's one of the prostitutes um, who's got a spark of something going on, some independence uh, compared to the other ones. Anyway, um, I uh, I really like this show. I will say that right out. Um, let's talk about first the relationships between the prostitutes and the pimps. Uh, which is one of the things I really like. Uh, there's a kind of mentorship going on that I think is brave to show and really interesting. Um, what did you guys? What What do you guys think about that? I wouldn't. I mean, super complicated. Obviously, I wouldn't yeah. characterize it as mentorship exactly. It's more like <laughs> this fucked up, like love power dynamic. I mean, speaking of sex and power being intertwined. Um, but what what the show shows is that it's not like these women hate their pimps who abuse them. They have they seek love from them. They seek affection from them and they um, find it and like even even if it's not something that uh, we would characterize as remotely healthy, um, they feel loved by them for the most part, it seems like. Yeah. It, and um, even though, uh, you know, sex worker wasn't the term used back then, but you know, it's. I think it's interesting to to use it, uh, even though it's not of the time. Because one of the things that is very clear in their relationship is that it is work, and that they often talk about like ne not having uh, the right um, attitude to work and needing motivation, which 
you know, see, if, if we were seeing a simplified version of it would be offensive. But in this context, um, is actually actually rings true uh, in this relationship between pimps and sex workers. And um, also we should say, I don't think we've mentioned that this show is set in 1971. Uh, and so there's this, um, you know, there, you can't help but look back and see, you know, the, the hair, the, the facial hair on the men, uh, the pimps with one exception are black. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're prostitutes. The, the women under their care or under their command um, are often, they usually have both black and white. Uh, I don't know what the word to use. I guess prostitutes under their yeah. com- command, I guess. Um, and so there, there are very interesting dynamics. Uh, it's complicated in a way that prestige television uh, does very well these days. Um, I don't know. I feel like we're not doing well at explaining, like, why is that? Because I, I, I came into this show kind of dreading, you know, like, oh, God, dude's making a show about sex work and, and pornography. I was kind of dreading it. But it is, it's fascinating. It doesn't, well, it doesn't, like, just go for the easy thing, which would be like, oh, these men are simply exploiting these women. Yeah. But it also, it doesn't do the reverse. It sort yeah. of lets it sort of linger in all the in all the um, uncomfortableness. Yes. I will say one, I I do find in some ways the period details distracting that in in some instances I feel that they reach for cliche in terms of dialogue and and characterization and I mean maybe pimps really were like this in the 1970s in in Times Square but it feels a little the those characters feel more cliched to me than anyone else in the show the men and the women are actually more sort of finely drawn than the men, I would say. But I haven't watched the whole season yet. You know, the whole season hasn't aired, so who knows? But that that is sort of my one issue with the show. Is like sometimes you're like, really? Like David this- Simon has always had a thing for like the the philosopher, you know, the philosopher who's mm-hmm. you know the sort of rough diamond kind of thing, and and he certainly makes his his pimps be philosopher kings. Yes, but it it feels if it, if it were like a set in 2017, I think I would have less resistance to that idea mm. than I do here. It feels like nostalgic. What I see in in what you're talking about the portrayal of the men versus the portrayal of the women, the kind of stock David Simon character, I feel himself holding himself back mm. and extremely conscious of 2017 gender dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I may be making that up. There is an interview with him and Terry Gross where he does talk about this. But on the one hand, he says he wants to he wants this show to feel like archival, like someone mm-hmm. just, you know, found it in a box and it was actually filmed in 1971. So that explains just the excessive atmospherics and period details and all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, you know, you can feel, for example, with the pimps, what you said, June, he's kind of pulling, they're not philosopher diamonds in the rough the way they are in the wire. Like, mm-hmm. he he seems to not want them, want you to love them quite that much so that he he's like, you know, he puts down the gate so that he's not fully embracing them the way he would a kind of violent character because they are violent against women. So in the first, in the pilot episode was almost too much for me. Like, it was om- the violence against, between the, the, there was a particular incident between a pimp and one of his women, which made you not, he had been totally charming up until, charming in that kind 
kind of sick way, but still char- mm-hmm. charming. And then and then David Simon kind of or George Pelicanos, whoever did this, pulled it back pretty hard um, and pretty abruptly because he did something pretty awful. Uh, and and whereas with the women, like you said, Noreen, there's there's he's they're so conscious of of drawing them richly, mm-hmm. of making completely varied types, you know. Mm-hmm. The kind of totally ruined ones, the semi-empowered but then ruined ones. It's like really a kind of rich panoply of women in the sex trade, which which is interesting. And also the way they film the sex. I mean, mm-hmm. let's talk about that a little bit. It's like it's it, they're trying so hard to 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 show you the truth without being titillating. Yeah. Um, do you guys think they were successful at that? Because it is a show about the sex trade. So, like you said, Noreen, you're just like, ugh, a bunch of guys making a show about this. It's just going to be about sex, you know. Um, but it isn't exactly. No, I mean it's not sexy. No. Um, there are you know there are relationships between characters who aren't pimps and prostitutes, and those are those are a little sexier. But um, the way that the you know, that there are porn scenes later on that are filmed that are just, you know, almost all about humorous, all, almost. Yes. All about biz- the business. Yeah. And um, the the sex scenes with the Johns are I forget who observed this, maybe Emily Nussbaum and her review. But but there is such a focus on actually the in many cases, grotesqueness of the men's bodies and the way they sort of loom over these women. And you start to think about what's happening in that room. And then there are later incidents where it it becomes clear, you know, just how violent and scary it can get. Um, But yeah, there's there's nothing particularly sexy about this show. And yet it's fun to watch in this really weird way. Yeah, it's a show that has really made me kind of question why I watch shows. um, Because... I'm not into the concept of it at all. And, you know, sometimes I'll watch a show for a romance. There is one romance uh, in the show, I would think we could say, uh, between a journalist type character and a cop uh, that's that, you know, I'm kind of rooting for that. But that's not exactly certainly not the reason I'm watching it. But what about the James Franco? There's also the James Franco college girl gone bad romance, which yeah. I'm, I'm kind of interested in. Yeah, yeah, I'm interested in that. And I, I'm pleasantly surprised by how much James Franco kind of fades into the background because he can be a focus puller and he's not doing that this time. Um, sometimes I'll watch a show because it's offering a look that I, you know, it's it's showing me something that I don't know or rep- or sometimes I'll watch a show because I want representation either of myself or other groups that I don't think I've seen enough of. And I don't quite know what it is in this. Maybe it is kind of that I feel like it's sort of showing me history, not so much about New York in 1971, which feels a little bit... I'm not, it feels a bit overexposed somehow, um, but just about the origins of this incredibly influential, incredibly important, you know, big chunk of our economy and, and something right. that's very influential. Um, and it's, yeah, it's interesting. But in a way, in this David Simon way where it's like, okay, it's about the porn train. But what you have to understand about the porn train is that it yeah. is because the mafia wanted to, like, you know, be able to get a cut of the prostitution. And, and so, crooked cops wanted right, a cut. And, right. Yeah, Everyone yeah, yeah. wanted a cut. And here's how it and here's why the obscenity laws weren't enforced. And, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. And you can see it sort of like setting up to go all through that um, sort of David Simony it's all connected and it's all money's fault yeah, kind of thing, yeah, which yeah, yeah. which I, I enjoy. But yeah. it is, I will also say it's kind of like the wire with wigs a little bit. Yeah. Like it's it's this, there's a no-go zone in Times Square where the cops are not going to go after anyone. And that's like Amsterdam from the wire and there are unions involved and many of the same characters are involved. And 
I loved The Wire, so yeah. I'm not totally upset, but there is a little bit of familiarity to it. So he, in, David Simon, in his interview with Terry Gross, they had this really interesting um, exchange where Terry Gross was kind of schoolmarmish and talked about how she was walking down the street to go to a party now in 2017. And she just very, like, gingerly said, and, you know, the women going to the party were kind of dressed like <laughs> the prostitutes on your show. <laughs> and um, it was a little, you know, shocking that she said that. Um, the, but then he launched into this thing about the ubiquitous influence of porn and how porn has taken over everything, basically, and completely shifted our norms. And I know this. I've read yeah. books about this. Yeah. But for some reason, it was it was it was alarming to me. Um, and I started to see the show in this totally different light. Like, oh, it's a show that's about the beginning of everything. Yeah. Um, did you guys buy that whole that whole that whole line? Absolutely. About, yeah. I mean, know? I think, you know, I looked at porn for decades. And yet I feel like so much of so I would so I and I only mentioned that to say like my life is about as far from porn as you can get, and yet I feel like the way we see ourselves, the way we look at other people, the way that we groom ourselves, even if we've never actually had firsthand encounters with porn, is shaped by porn, and that is crazy. Totally, and especially coming after our Hugh Hefner discussion, it just felt all of a piece. And I have to say, so I'm, I keep interrupting no, you, but okay. but um. You know, one of the things that is interesting in the show is that these are pre-peak porn bodies. Mm -hmm. Like the prostitutes, the sex workers show their bodies, they use their bodies, but they have real bodies, not the kind of bodies that that people have now. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. Ma Maggie Gyllenhaal like purposely never wears a bra. You yeah, know? she yeah. just she doesn't have a plasticky body at all in this show. Aside, since you brought this up about the bodies, this is something my friend Margaret brought up, um, that the one period detail they can't get right is is, peep, is like the men's bodies. Because she was pointing out in the 70s, men were slimmer, but they didn't they weren't cut. You know, uh, yeah. uh -huh. um, there's just a kind of body that doesn't really exist anymore. That's kind of not toned the way yeah. James Franco's body is toned. And yeah. like th th that period, like even the, the, the college girl gone bad. She has a 2017 look, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh, yeah, like a 2017 body, the kind of arms, everything like that. It's yeah. all just kind of nicely toned. Yeah, that's um, interesting. And we one one I just really loved that interview they did with uh, Terry Gross, actually, like it sort of it put the show into context for me as actually a feminist piece of art, although I, I don't think that they said that like they were sort of. I appreciated just the way that they were thinking about things without being too self-congratulatory. Like, they do have a writer's room that has women in it. They, you know, women directed half of the episodes. This woman who's well-known for her work on Breaking Bad was super involved in it. Um, they seem to have, like, done all of the right things. And yet they also had their sort of uh, late middle-aged man way of seeing the world that they were bringing to this interview. And I just yeah. kind of love the tension between those two things. And, and yeah. um, it's worth listening to. Yeah. And I mean, in a sense, I do get the feeling that they're kind of atoning with this show, mm. you know, in a way that we, we kind of we all are now. We're all making up for our bad attitudes, especially men, you know, <laughs> but especially people in this industry. The Wire is not The Sopranos. It's definitely not Game of Thrones. But you know, I think everybody who's made a prestige TV show, you know, especially like one on HBO where you can show bodies, has something to make up for. And I, I think I don't think that's why they made this show. 
But so like they are they're kind of atoning and I'm glad and it is interesting. All right. We got to wrap this up. But one other thing, the bar that kind of launches the show, which is the bar that the James Franco character rules over is an homage. It's like the one space where, you know, you know, transgender, queer, gay, white, black, like it's it was the one place that that wasn't segregated. Not the one place. What do I know? But it was a place unique in this way in which everyone was welcome. That's that's one of the bits of research that they did. And it makes the bar particularly interesting locale. Uh, and I have to say, just to extend slightly, that I also love the the diner, which is another mm. place, uh, you know, where different people get to meet, where cops and prostitutes and and uh, uh, pimps and, you know, just folks, mailmen having their breakfast, hang out. And it's a place both of judgment and non-judgment. Um, and it's really interesting. And as somebody who grew up on British soap operas that often have um, like a pub as the main central location, I'm really appreciative of those places. All right. All hail the pub. OK, so let's talk about ageism and our complicity in it. <laughs> Woo. Okay, Ashton Applewhite, who's a writer in New York, wrote a story in the New York Times that kind of messed with my head. I'm just going to be completely out there here. This topic is for me, and you guys are going to help me with this. <laughs> um, that's just how it's going to be. She wrote, um, trying to pass for younger is like a gay person trying to pass for straight or a person of color for white. These behaviors are rooted in shame over something that shouldn't be shameful. And they give a pass to the underlying discrimination that makes them un that makes them necessary i.e. Harvey Weinstein. Um, I recently reviewed uh, the Kurt Anderson book Fantasyland, where I learned uh, that in his youth, um, uh, his youth, like, I think pre, maybe 70s. Anyway, in his youth, um, no women, none of the moms colored their hair. That that's like a new thing, you know, mm -hmm. that coloring your gray hair is a new thing. And then this, this article um calls it a, uh, you know, a, a kind of display of shame. So I have a lot of thoughts about this, but since I've already soapboxed enough already <laughs> for the start of this, what, what, what did, did you guys, what did you guys buy this manifesto about gray hair, shame, older, younger? I did. And then I spiraled and started looking at <laughs> face creams. Um, so, <laughs> like, I'm not even kidding. Uh, so on the one hand, <laughs> On the one hand, yes, I think that we should all reclaim our aging faces. On the other hand, I just don't want mine to age. <laughs> on the other hand, face cream. <laughs> and on the other hand, like, it's a real thing. Like, you know, ageism in the workplace, and especially if you're trying to get hired, is so for real. And so I completely understand, um, you know, it's like you know it's wrong. It's like, do you really feel shame when you know that the system is absolutely screwed up and, in a sense, you're a victim of it? Well, there are like two separate questions almost, separate but related. It's like people feel shame over aging because of, you know, women in particular worry about, you know, their okay. sexual – like the way that they are perceived as sexually viable beings, as attractive, as, you know, all these things that we've spent our entire lives sort of conforming to these standards and all of a sudden you're not. And so that's one set of sort of um, – one, one sense of loss mm -hmm. over that. And then there's this idea that in the workplace you will be – less desirable too that you that nobody men, wants to hire their mom no one wants to hire their mom and and i think that those are like a little bit different and the second one the second one seems like we should be able to fix it right like wisdom is such an important part of any office and 
it's just that seems like there will be at some point a reckoning with with the danger of having just 25 year olds run everything. So that one I'm more hopeful about this this like deeper question of looking in the mirror and feeling um you know, less than you used to be. Maybe that one just <laughs> terrifies me more. I don't know. I see. I I'm I I don't want to talk too much because I really want to hear from Hannah, who uh, yeah. who, who said she was on her soapbox, but only spoke for about thirty seconds. So I want to hear that soapbox. But like, I've always been almost completely oblivious to my appearance, like more than I really should. But I must admit that like I take great pride in not coloring my hair. But I'm not sure if I would if it. Hadn't yeah, you, not turned. you don't have gray hair. I don't have gray hair. So like it's easy. Like it's my only point of appearance pride. So like I, this whole thing of like depriving yourself of food to stay skinny. Uh-uh, not doing that. But like I wonder if I would color my hair if it was or like my hairdresser recently, like just for a lark, suggested putting like blue or purple or something. Mm. And I was like, oh, no, because I don't want to make it seem like I color my hair. Mm. So like I was actually then working into that whole still so if it even affects me, who who really should take more care of her appearance, then like it clearly is very, very, very. June looks great, by the way. BC Dubs look fantastic, but yeah. Um, but come on, so tell me yeah, what June, you. Yeah, June, you have a look. What yes, do I, I do. think? Have okay, a look. I my part part. You do have a look. Part <laughs> of so part of my pushback against this article. Like at first, I was like, no, and here's my pushback against it. You know, in the John Cheever era, like women over like they just weren't in the game Mm -hmm. after like 32. You know, you would have casual references and novels of that era (laughs) and even more modern novels that like she was past her prime, you know, or like no one looked at her anymore. Or there was just this sense that like it was a given in the culture that you were done, like you were done sexually and you were done professionally in a way. And my pushback to that is that maybe the fact that women are coloring their hair is a kind of fuck you and a sign that we're still in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like there's no, nobody's giving up and nobody expects you to give up. And, you know, we're still playing. That's that's one that's one way to look at it. Um, it's a sign of 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 actually uh, increasing sort of power and visibility, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to the kind of middle aged women are invisible line that so many people like to say, like, maybe it's the opposite. You mm-hmm. know, they're still visible. Now, about the details. I mean, it's just exhausting. Like I often think, yes, <laughs> you know, my hair is probably gray if I don't color it. And my mom's hair was white at a very young age. Like the the women in my family go gray super young. And it was true of my mom. And she did not color her hair. Mm. She happens to look fabulous with white hair, but she never colored her hair. Um, and I just think like, then I think like this meant like how little time and money they have to spend. Yeah. They just walk in the world. Now they do go to the gym and stuff like there is a and maybe 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 you can Brooklyn me here and be like, are you kidding? Like with the beards and the this and the beard oil, like maybe that's changed a lot, you know. Um, but in general, there are just like they're just like bottom line maintenance things that you have to do to walk around in your workplace and, you know, feel like in the game that are like exhausting, you know. Yeah. And that come at a time when you you have children. It's just like a lot of time and yeah. effort. Yeah. And so every once in a while, I think like, fuck it, I'm not going to color my hair. And then my hairdresser is like, uh-uh, no, <laughs> not yet. In 20 years, Hannah. So anyway, yeah. I don't, that's, 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 I just am of two minds. What I actually, here's what I really want. I want one of our listeners to give me a manifesto on gracefully entering this phase of life. 
Like I, maybe you read it somewhere. Like maybe maybe you it could be like an actress wrote it in her memoirs or it could be like totally self-helpy. I just I need some I need guidance. That's all about how it, not to be like rageful and going back and forth and just like had to move through this phase gracefully. No, no, no. See, I, I you don't want that, Hannah. I don't think like <laughs> su- suddenly you're looking for graceful. No, no. Come on. No, that, that is not like the desired move. You know, as that you, was mean. As you know, as you said earlier, now you it's like it's all about saying, no, I'm not changing. I'm still here. Like, I'm not going to, like, conform to some view of some graceful middle-aged lady. Uh-uh. I'm, I'm still vital. I'm like, I've got ideas up the wazoo. Like, I, what, what has changed? No, why should I conform to some script? I'm all for that. Never mind. So can graceful. I go gray? Totally. I don't think you should go gray. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a woman who spent a lot of time on face cream websites. I don't know. I think like I, I part of part of my fear about getting older is not recognizing myself. Mm-hmm. And if like if what helps you feel like yourself is having the same color hair or even like, you know, a platinum blonde or whatever you've decided to have, then I think you should do it. Like I think if I looked in the mirror and my hair were gray, that would that would upset me more than any kind of cultural shame, and and so I plan to I plan to dye my hair until the day I die. Although I haven't <laughs> I haven't started yet, and I'm gonna go like really crazy colors when I do. I can't <laughs> wait. I <laughs> maybe if I could get over like it, the men don't do it problem, and maybe I could just convince myself I'm wrong. Men do do it. They go to the gym. Like men do have a lot of kind of upkeep that they have to do if they don't want to just let it go. You know, so it's not fair to say only women do it because men men do stuff. You know, they it's have like to body wax stuff. their backs. Yeah. Don't you think this is okay? So my big thing is that I think it's not just about shame. I think it's mostly about fear, fear of mm, death, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so men like react to fear of death in other ways, like you know the classic middle-aged what's that even called midlife crisis right so they they have a midlife crisis and we you know look at face creams (laughs) look at face creams dye our hair etc etc maybe that's that's too pat but but i really do think it's not about shame it's about it's about it's about death coming for us all the inevitability it's true and one of the things we read um you know had a it was just a, a truism but like confidence is an aphrodisiac that you just have to you know that it's not about not not being sexy or not having an interest in sex or not having sex appeal. If you're confident and if you seem like you're a person, you know, who's like, who's ready up for it, or I don't even know what the term is, but like, oh, that sounded so not cool. But anyway, um, <laughs> I know what you mean. You, you know do what get I mean. that. That is right. one gift of, of getting older is you do have that. You like sink into that without much reservation. So, you know, God gives us something. All right. Well, enough of that. All right. Let's move on to our recommendations. But June, you have some things to tell us first. Yes, I just want to mention a few things. All the people listening to this know all about podcasts and spend time listening to podcasts. You found lots of shows you love, like this one, hopefully. But what about podcasts for your kids? Until now, the offerings have been spotty and hard to find. That's why Panoply created Pinna, an entire audio service just for kids. Pinna is a standalone iPhone app just iPhones for the moment, filled with hours of original stories and serials, great podcasts, and all-you-can-listen audiobooks. And there's more added each week. Audio gets your kids off screens and lets them use their imaginations. Pinna is ad-free, guilt-free, and a great activity for car time, bath time, group time, bedtime, or anytime. Try Pinna for free by going to Pinna, that's P-I-N-N-A dot F-M slash listen, 
to start your free trial today. That's pinna.fm slash listen to start your free trial. I also want to mention that if you are in New York on the anniversary of the 2016 election results, there is a fantastic slate event. It will take stock of the year that was and celebrate the work of those who have served as a check on this administration. Um, You can join Slate Writers for a series of one-on-one conversations with those at the forefront of politics, media, the law and activism as they compare notes on the lessons, challenges and victories they've seen over the past year and what they expect from the next. There'll be Jamel Bowie in conversation with Tom Perriello, who's a former Democratic gubernatorial candidate from Virginia. Isaac Chotner will talk with Jelani Cobb, a staff writer for The New Yorker and a professor at Columbia Journalism School. Dahlia Lithwick will be in conversation with Becca Heller, founder of the International Refugee Assistance Project. Michelle Goldberg in conversation with Tamika Mallory from The Women's March. And Jordan Weissman will be be in conversation with Rashad Robinson, Executive Director of Colour of Change, and it will be all hosted by Julia Turner. That's on November 8th at the New School Auditorium in New York. For information and tickets, visit slate.com slash live. And as always, if you're a Slate Plus member, you get 30% off your purchase. All right. Recommendations. Noreen, why don't you go first? I have been reading a cookbook, sort of a cookbook, um, called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Nosrat with um, illustrations by Wendy McNaughton. And it's she, Samin Nosrat worked in the kitchen of Chez Panisse and then she cooked in other kitchens. And it's basically like it explains the chemistry Mm. behind cooking. It breaks it down into these elements. And I've always sort of, I I love to cook. I cook a lot and, and from recipes, but I've always resisted the sort of scientific aspect of it. Like that's not my preferred kind of, you know, way of thinking about cooking. But this sort of combines it like I think even she uses this example. It gives you the chords that you can um, have in order to play chaz. And it it breaks down things that you understand instinctively about taste and kind of breaks down the science of it without feeling too sciencey. Um, and there are sort of recipes, but not really. It's more like you understand, like, okay, here are different ways I can use vinegar to cut this mistake that I made, or like here are flavors that will combine um, in a pleasing way. And this is exactly why it happens. And this is what the salt does when you put it on at this point, And this is what the salt does when you put it on at that point. And wow. that's, this is why like this brand of kosher salt works better than that brand of kosher salt. Like, and it has to do with the size of the crystals. <laughs> um, and I'm super into it. Wow. Wow. You're like a really intellectual cook. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's, I think you get to do that when you're not cooking for a family. Like, I'm not like trying to put on, you know, dinner for six every night. Yeah. No, I liked, I'd love to cook, but I, it never occurred to me to like, n- to ask the question why when I'm cooking. It, but it's really <laughs> helpful. Like, it's not even like why. It's like practical guidance. Mm-hmm. I don't, I actually don't like the sort of fussy, you know, um, science-y sci- cooking. Yeah, I don't like that kind. This is, this is, I promise, this is like the chemistry in everyday life kind of version of the science. All right. I trust you. I love new cookbooks. <clears throat> okay. So me, I, um, Wyclef Jean's new album, the third in the Carnival series, is just so hitting the spot for me these days. I've been holed up and making a radio story for the last few weeks, and he that's my only break. <laughs> uh, it's so beautiful. It's so moving. It's, like, really romantic. Um, it, it has a lot of homages to his favorite artists. Um, it's called The Fall and Rise of a Refugee, and... Uh, I don't know. Just love it. Very soothing. So check it out. Cool. So June, what do you have? So the 
final season of Halt and Catch Fire ended last weekend. And I just loved it so much. And I, I think that the audience wasn't that big. And I, as many critics have observed, this is probably a show that will catch on long after it finished airing because it's such good quality. But I think people were kind of intimidated about watching it every week. And it'll be something that will be super successful as a streaming show. But the final season was so pleasing because it really you know, yes, it had plot in in a sense. It was about the race between like web directories and search engines as a way of navigating the web. But it was much more than that. It was really something that you rarely see on television, which it, it just kind of covered big issues like what's it like to have a really long term relationship with people, not just love relationships, but friend relationships or former husband. What's it like to be really close to someone then to kind of be out of their lives in a certain way, but still in their lives because you have kids together. What's the, what's it like to have ambition? What's it like to work with someone really closely and then not work, work with them for a while? Just things that, you know, could, could be banal, but the way that they handled these big topics was so satisfying and so kind of thought-provoking that um, I just loved the show. So if you didn't watch Halt and Catch Fire... Um, it's something that it's worth watching from the beginning. There's only four seasons, um, but the last season in particular was really great. And I think it's, it is stronger if you've kind of put in the time with the other seasons, um, but just a beautiful show, Halt and Catch Fire. I want to watch it. members of my family who love that show. Mm. I have never watched it. Sounds great. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you to our producer, Verilyn Williams, our wonderful intern, Daniel Schrader. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you again in two weeks. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.